The Secrets of Star Trek is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in all the Star Trek TV series, movies, and more. And today we're discussing the Enterprise first season episode, Fusion. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today on the panel are Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going, Dom? Very well, thanks. And Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, be sure to join the StarQuest fan club by texting StarQuest, all one word, to 66866. That's StarQuest to 66866. And I want to tell you about another show on the network that I'm sure you'll enjoy called American Catholic History. In about 20 minutes every week, Tom and Noel tell us a story from the uh, from American Catholics and throughout the, the history uh, back to 1530-something or other, I think is the, the range. And it's not just saints and uh, the holy people. It's all kinds of Catholics, all kinds of stories. Check it out wherever you find fine podcasts or at sqpn.com slash history. But today we're talking about this Enterprise story, Fusion. And Jimmy, can you give us a a recap of this episode? This week, the Enterprise helps a bunch of Vulcan space hippies repair their beater spaceship. While that's happening in our A-plot, one of the Vulcan hippies, Tolaris, starts trying to get T'Pol to turn on, tune in, and drop out of the whole Vulcan repressed emotion (laughs) scene. He wants her to stop meditating for a while so she can stop being so uptight and repressed man and have more trippy psychedelic dreams. He then tempts her with the forbidden narcotic of a mind meld, but as they're grooving together in the mind meld, T'Pol gets cold feet and calls it off. Only Talaris is so into it, he's having a hard time realizing that no means no, and she has to push him away. Hmm. Meanwhile, in our B-plot, the guy who keeps the Vulcan space buggy running, a hip young dude named Kav, has been having generation gap troubles because his old man is like such a square and they haven't (laughs) spoken in years, man. But his dad is dying, so Archer tries to talk talk Kav into giving his old man a jingle, collect and everything, only Kav won't hear of it. However, Trip talks him into it, and Cobb's dad tells him he's just had a life-saving operation. Unfortunately, he may not be the only person who needs one, because that too forceful mind meld that Talaris did on T'Pol has left her in sickbay. She could have suffered neurological damage if it had gone any further. So, Archer tells Talaris and his deadbeat space buddies to hop in their dune buggy and hit the road. The end. <laughs> 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 Back to the the Garden of Eden. Uh, Back to the 60s. That's a much better take on this episode than I had. But <laughs> <laughs> That makes it a lot more entertaining. Well, one of the things about this episode is it plays on our expectations. So for so long, Archer and the crew have been criticizing and rejecting Vulcan aloofness and logic and the lack of emotion. And so I think as the audience, we've been primed to sympathize with these more human-like Vulcans. And then they... they flip the tables on us by making at least Talaris a bad guy because of it. What do you guys think of that? No, I I agree completely. And of course, you've got one character that shows up for like five minutes, Tavin, who's supposedly the head of this thing and he's there and gone. He vanishes. Yeah. Yeah. It was weird. Tavin is the captain of the Vulcan space beater. Right. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. 
you know, I, I, I commented where, you know, I think Jimmy took a better take on me. I, I looked at this episode as basically a metaphor for manipulation and abuse leading to rape. I mean, that's basically what the whole Tolaris right. plot thread played out as. And then, oh, you got the nice Kov storyline underneath it. To- right. Yeah, I think structurally, Kov is meant to be there to show us these Vulcans aren't all bad. Right. Whereas Tolaris is there to be bad. But in watching Tolaris, I could I could see where this is going, and I wanted to watch for signs of manipulation. And mm-hmm. is he really manipulating her, or is he genuinely trying to be helpful based on his beliefs? Mm-hmm. And I think it's the latter. I think he's genuinely trying to be helpful. He is, um, I mean, he is a Vulcan space hippie. Um, that believes in mind melds and stuff like that, uh, which was not typical of Vulcans in this era. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he's, uh, but he, up to the point where they're actually in the mind meld, I don't sense him manipulating her. I think he's really trying to be helpful. And that, but he is so into it when it happens that he has trouble stopping. Yeah. But up to that point, it's like, we don't have to do this. You know, it's only it's only if you want to. And she's like, and he points out, you know, there can be problems and things like that. And she's like, do it. Mm. Right. And and so um, so I didn't think he was all bad uh, the way he's written. Now, maybe right. they meant him to be a master manipulator who is trying to rape her. But I didn't get that. I think and, they good. I was gonna say, you know, I, I, maybe it's more just how he played, how the actor played the character. Because I saw him; he's mm-hmm. just creepy throughout. I mean, yeah. this wasn't like, wow, man, it's so groovy. It was like Creepsville, big yeah. time. You know, they also have a bad makeup job on him, where like the mm-hmm. edges of his face are green and the center of his face is red, and <laughs> it, yeah. it, it he does look creepy. Um, and he does have this creepy vibe. I mean, he's clearly going to be the problem person, but I do like the conflict about these with T'Pol about these Vulcans, when she has a name for them, they're called Vitosh Katur, which right. she translates mm-hmm. as Vulcans without logic. And, and she, when she realizes what they are, she's of course very cold towards them. And she, she tells them, uh, she tells Archer that what they're doing is dangerous. Um, they're trying to integrate their emotions, and they say we don't reject Sirach's teachings; we reject their interpretation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So these are kind of Vulcan Protestants, <laughs> <laughs> or fill in the denominational names as you please. This yes, is a right. dispute not about the base material, but about the, its interpretation. Sure. And they want to integrate logic and emotion. And Tapal says, this is dangerous. This has been tried by multiple other people, and they have all failed. Mm-hmm. So it's like our, our emotions are just too strong. There's no way to integrate them, and it's going to lead to problems. And she has a line I really like where she tells Archer, uh, they may smile and eat chicken, but that <laughs> doesn't mean that, you know that they're great <laughs> and right. and she's right this is what i mean the episode doesn't prove that everyone's always going to fail but her prediction comes true mm-hmm. that their attempt or at least Tolaris's attempt to integrate emotions and logic does not work his emotions take over and lead him to cross a line yeah yep 
Yeah, that actually the the eating chicken thing was th- that was one of those early indicators where they're trying to show us these are not your typical Vulcan because Vulcans we've been told, especially in this series, are vegetarians. They do they the mm-hmm. idea of eating meat is disgusting to them. Uh, and then Talara Tavin at dinner with the with Archer and and, and Paul and Tucker is like, what's that there? Chicken marsala? I'll take some of that. And which I you know have to blame him. Chicken marsala is awesome. Yeah, but. Uh, <laughs> Tavin, by the way, is played by Robert Pine, who's a frequent mm-hmm. Star Trek uh, guest star. But he's also the father of Christopher Pine, Chris Pine. It was okay. Who, mm-hmm. who eventually is Kirk in the uh, the the 2009 reboot? So I just and, that and, was and if you want to go way back, he was the sergeant on Chips. That's right, he was. <laughs> oh man, that takes me back. Uh, <laughs> so and then Talaris is played by Enrique Marciano, who's been in a bunch of different things, but he's a pretty he's a he's a decent actor. He's uh, yep. I've always enjoyed his stuff. No, the the, the uh, Vatosh Katur, the Vulcans Without Logic, Cybok, kind of yeah. like that. Yeah, I mean, only Cybok isn't around yet, right? Yeah. I, I was going to comment uh, about how you know it's been tried and failed, like say trying to find God in the middle of the galaxy. <laughs> right, right. Now, within the the Star Trek universe, it didn't happen yet, but Star Trek Five came out before. Enterprise, oh, well before right? this. Yeah, well before right. this. Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought. So uh, maybe in the uh, mind of the uh, writers, that was that was they were thinking about that. Uh, I do like Kav at uh, lunch with uh, uh, Tucker. (laughs) He starts asking about human reproduction. Yeah, Kav is is a lot of fun. Is it true that you mate year round with any of them you choose? (laughs) Yeah, and and that you eat six meals a day, and that you sleep for more than half of the day. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I mean, no, we're not hobbits. We don't eat six meals a day, but. well, also, some dieting advice says to, and it's right. completely wrong. Yeah. Yes. And uh, what was the other thing was the, uh, oh, the foot football, where they try to yeah. kill the quarterback. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I love how we come in on that line and it's like Trip is saying, okay, no, I'm serious. He's really not trying to kill the quarterback. <laughs> <laughs> even even as, you know, people, when the quarterback is having to scramble, people are shouting, kill him, but it's not literally kill him. Yeah. It reminded me of an old Andy Griffith uh, routine uh, from before the Andy Griffith show mm. where when he was just a comedian mm-hmm. and he made records. He made comedy records like a lot right. of comedians did. And uh, he had a routine called what it was was football. And he plays oh. in this routine. He plays a character who is rural, you know, um, from a rural background, has never seen a football game before. And goes to see one, buys his big orange drink, and sits down to watch it, and then tries to describe football to someone who's never heard of it before. <laughs> oh, I think I have heard this one before. Yeah. Oh, I've I've long time to find ago. That. It's yeah. He, he's like he he misidentifies like the referee because of the striped black and white shirt as like a convict running around on the field. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that'd be good. Uh, yeah, I mean, I love that, like the the cultural like misconceptions and myths that you might have about a culture you're not familiar with, and and we have that here on Earth, you know, where people like have ideas about you know uh, Asian cultures or African cultures mm-hmm. that we don't haven't got a lot of uh, experience with. So uh, that was a fun little bit. You know, now one thing I thought was very interesting was Archer at one point early on. Starts pushing to Paul on the new Vulcan philosophy, basically telling her you need to be open to the heretics' ideas, which I yeah. found kind of kind of pushy and insensitive. Like I I don't remember that. I remember him telling her she ought to spend time with them. She he but, actually uses the line "keep an open mind." Yeah, 
Uh, yeah, which, I, t- I took that not as much as a reference to their beliefs as just, you know, they can be reasonable people, maybe. I yeah, guess. I, I took it more of, of their, you know, hmm. being open to what they have to say, what their beliefs are. Um, right. Which which I found kind of ironic is how many times have they had the discussion where archers opposed to some other, some alien species beliefs or structures and she tells them to have an open mind. I felt <laughs> that was kind of a bit of an irony, you mm-hmm. know, right. the tables type of deal. Right. Yeah. He, he's also so sorry for the science update, but he's also so jazzed because he gets to go in this episode to see something called the Arachnid Nebula. Yep. Which he would like look at on the, you know, I mean, I had these time life books that my parents bought when I was a kid and yep. one of them was about space and I still have a copy of it. Um, and so he has the same thing. He's got a 22nd century time life book, I guess, about space and it's got the Arachnid Nebula on the cover. And um, and now in this episode, they get to go see it and explore it. And he's so jazzed about it. And they're telling us it is eight because they want us to know how impressive it is. It is, <laughs> it is eight billion kilometers in diameter. And I'm going, <laughs> that's so special because our solar system is 287 billion kilometers so yeah. <laughs> in diameter. So um, our solar system is 30 times, 36 times bigger than this thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This, yeah. It's not. In fact, the real arachnid nebula might, must be bigger. There, I would. Yeah, think. there yeah. isn't one. It, they made it up. Oh, they did make it up. Okay. So um, and any nebula that you could photograph from Earth would have to be much bigger than than 8 billion kilometers across, I would think. Well, uh, with current telescopes, but yeah. you know. Okay. Okay. Uh, the other thing that got me was like it looked exactly with the naked eye exactly the way it looked on the cover of the book and this is the thing that Star Trek does all the time which is the, a lot of the pictures we have of nebula are false color images that they've kind of mm-hmm. jazzed up a bit yep. so that we can actually see what what's there and so it wouldn't look exactly the same but that's okay well, well it's, it's we'll almost as if they took the CGI and just made a print of it and put it on the front of the book or something almost <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, the other thing is I like is that it's his uh, childhood textbook in which he wrote on the inside property of Admiral Johnny Archer, which I thought, you know, it's very cute. Yeah. Um, I was distracted by. So one of the themes in this episode is food. Yeah. Because, you know, it's because we need the characters to be talking to each other. So let's put them in the cafeteria yep. and they can have, be having food and talking about food and the Balkans can be trying food. So Cobb is like saying, oh, or no, um, Talaris is saying, uh, Mr. Tucker told me I need to try pizza and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Yep. But there's a scene where uh, T'Pol is having hot mint tea mm-hmm. and and Talaris wants to try it. And so she gives him a cup of it or a glass of it. And he's like, you know, this isn't a Vulcan thing. And she's like, well, they have a very limited selection of Vulcan beverages. And all that's fine, except for hot mint tea. Really? Hot? I I mean, I know <laughs> mint tea. I make mint tea. And I can assure you that mint tea is best served cold. Uh-oh. <laughs> this, this, this is us, us heathen northerners who tea is hot unless you make it as sun tea in the you know few days in the summer when it actually gets sunny enough for that. No. <laughs> well, mint tea is a definitely a dish best served cold. I I I mean you use hot water to make it. I'll mm-hmm. I'll have a yeah. you know pitcher and I'll put the mint tea bags in it and then I'll fill it up with hot water. It doesn't have to be boiling but just hot and then I stick it in the fridge. 
Yeah. Mm. And it is delicious when it comes out um, <laughs> nice. uh, cold. <laughs> I will have some of my, uh, right now, some of my uh, decaf Lipton non-mint uh, iced tea, but uh, I, I married a Texan, so I drink uh, iced tea. Uh, well, I, yeah, I, yeah, I mean, I from Texas, I drink iced tea too, but yeah. <laughs> um, but mint tea is exactly what it says. It's right. not, it does not use actual tea leaves. It uses mint leaves. Okay. And so it tastes very, it's not just mint flavored regular tea. It is mint. mint. And, okay. and you can also get peppermint tea, mm-hmm. which is peppermint leaves. And it, uh, they have this very intense mint taste. And it's really good cold. And that becomes a point for Talaris, where he kind of says, that's not a very Vulcan kind of drink that you're drinking there. Uh, and he kind of, that's his in for kind of saying to, to Paul, like, look, you're already taking a step in our direction with, with being on board this ship and being exposed to humans and their emotions for almost a year now. So, you know, maybe you should experiment, you know, hey, don't, don't meditate tonight. Uh, see what, where that leads you. And then, it ends up with this this thing that this show keeps doing, which is this very sexualization of mm-hmm. the Jolene Blaylock, and like t- we didn't really need that. It was weird. No, were they trying to say that he was influenced, like he was in projecting into her mind these images, mm, or did this come means... up on her own? No, oh, he has enough. to ask her even after she's had the first set of dreams. He has to ask, "What did you dream about?" Mm-hmm. He doesn't know. Okay. Well, and, and and she said that the most of the dream was when she had snuck out of the compound, the Vulcan compound in San San Francisco, and went to this jazz club. I guess jazz club, whatever the music was. Yeah, it was yeah. jazz. And was the name jazz. of the club was Fusion, which Fusion apparently gives us the name of the episode. Yeah. <laughs> and and so this this was a dream of something she had experienced, and then I guess her subconscious, however you want to explain it, overlaid the 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 sexual aspect with Talaris. Okay, the sort of forbidden fruit aspect of uh yep. because yeah, she's uncomfortable about having transgressed by going to this jazz club and experiencing the the emotion of because jazz music is extreme is a very emotional kind of music mm-hmm. that's with a lack well, of of not external this logic. Jazz. Yeah, no, yeah. It's, it's kind and of that, that's that's why I called bland. it out as is supposedly a jazz club because that, <laughs> that wasn't good jazz. It was kind of bland, <laughs> bland jazz, but yeah, like I, I I get where they're going with this because jazz is you know. It, doesn't have an uh, external logic to it. It's kind of mm-hmm. chaotic no, a bit. Sometimes, mm-hmm. uh, right, right. I, I, it, it, it that's a simplistic looking look at jazz itself. But uh, so she she experiences the emotion of it, and that was a sort of forbidden um, thrill that she had that she's trying to repress. And so he kind of he finds this chink in her armor and starts digging, and that's how he gets he gets in. So I thought that was a. That was interesting in of itself. I mean that that aspect of the the script. Um, I mean, it, I I like the idea of exploring to Paul this Vulcan among humans and mm-hmm. this idea of. I mean, this is what Star Trek has always done. This was Spock. This was Data. This you know that we keep doing this where we bring this outsider who's got a different look outlook on the world and the universe. Neelix. Ne- Neelix? Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you had to bring that up, but uh, yeah. sure, Neelix. <laughs> so, so this leads to what I thought was a, a deficit in this episode, which is the Vulcan acting by the guest Vulcans. Yeah. Mm. To Paul, so Jolene Blaylock um, really does communicate, 
I am a non-human and I'm repressing my emotions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, she does that effectively. She doesn't come across as a normal person. And the the guest actors have a challenge of we're Vulcan, so we're not human, but we're supposed to have at least broadly achieved a balance with our emotions that with, apparently right. has taken us years for us to develop. The problem is they act like they're totally comfortable in their human skins. Mm. You right. know, they, 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 they're acting way too human, uh, on the subtle level. Right. The, I, you know, I have in my note, one of my first notes, Captain Vulcan captain, very human acting. Mm-hmm. And the acting that they're doing does not convey any sense of alienness. And what they needed to do for all of these Vulcans is find a way to communicate. I am an alien. At the same time as I am open to experiencing a wider range of emotions. And mm-hmm. they didn't do that. They're, they're much, they, they come across as much too human to my mind. Yeah. They should have done something more like, let's, let's find something that was particularly Romulan, say, in, even in TNG or DS9 and bring some of it. Now they shouldn't act like Romulans because that's different, but bring some of that over. Um, but yeah, I agree. I think they should have had a little bit more. Le- like, less like, hippie human <laughs> like the female romulan captain in the second romulan episode ever where yeah. she mm-hmm. is or mark leonard um in the first romulan episode ever where mm-hmm. they right. do communicate they have this exotic feel to them that isn't just totally normal yeah right right, right. i agree i agree with that uh one thing i thought was interesting uh the design of the vulcan ship the interior of it looked a lot like that Vulcan ship on Lower Decks. So it seems to me that Lower Decks went to this episode to find out what does a Vulcan ship's interior look like? Because we've never seen an interior like to this scale of a Vulcan ship before. Yeah, I kind of noticed that that center console kind of looked like the one that the the, uh, one the Lower Deckers was working on. Right, right. The the Mariner Lower Decker was working on. (laughs) It looked similar. Yes, I thought that was was kind of a a nice... uh, callback that they did there um so mind melds were something did we we haven't seen mind melds in enterprise before then right this was the first mind meld in enterprise this this was the first um because they 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 basically said that it was it was something that was uh outlawed it was no longer allowed okay uh, at this point and did they bring them back in discovery which post dates this within the timeline we see some t- some mind melding. We see, yeah, oh yeah, Sarek is mind melding all over the place. Like <laughs> right, that. that's right. Yeah. Um, but that's after the Vulcan Reformation, which yeah. happens at mm-hmm. the end in season four of uh, of Enterprise. Right, 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 right. It's when so they, long. they 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 yeah. rediscover a an a Katra arc of Sarek that sheds more light on his teachings. Right, that's right, that's right. I forgot all about that. It's been twenty years since I saw that. Um. And then um, at the end, there's this moment where T'Pol and Archer have this. Well, Archer confronts Talaris and basically forces his hand and shows that, uh, yeah, you're a lot more violent and less, you know, peace loving hippie than you claim to be. I, I was kind of intrigued by the acting in that scene because it's not clear at the beginning of the scene what Archer is going to do. Mm-hmm. And he, at the beginning of that scene, is acting very friendly. He's his typical Jonathan Archer self, like nothing is wrong. Yeah. And I'm going, oh, I don't know about this acting choice, because if he was really, I mean, 
if he was, re- I mean, I'm seeing Scott Bakula's acting range here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But in terms of his acting choice to be that positive at the beginning of the scene when his first officer who he cares about, and unfortunately we later learn that he's secretly in love with, <laughs> is lying in sickbay after what he would perceive as virtually a telepathic rape. Right. Why are you being so friendly to this guy at the beginning of the scene? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But by the end of it, you see that he's he his aim was to subtly provoke him into yeah, right. into this angry uh, attack. You could have could have provoked him quicker. <laughs> yeah. Or <laughs> as he regrets, he should have maybe provoked him a little less cuz he yeah. he didn't anticipate getting thrown across the room, uh but he did have a face pistol ready. Uh, but I liked, I mean, the actor, Enrique Marciano, did a pretty good job of showing that that anger that uh, that like rises up in Talaris and mm-hmm. becomes very menacing in that scene, which is mm-hmm. was pretty good. And and I think that, um, I mean, I have some sympathies for, uh, you know, for all kinds of different cultural trends and stuff. But one of the things that was characteristic of the hippie movement was a form of narcissism mm-hmm. where it's all about pleasure and you know i'm going to reject society's norms and i'm just going to live for now and have the pleasure with these drugs and this free sex and stuff like that and that narcissism would lead to people getting hurt you know people mm-hmm. would od and they'd get raped and things like that and that's what we're playing with here essentially he gets effectively he gets to paul high and into a situation that starts out consensually and then turns non-consensual and he doesn't stop yep. right and archer is in the position of i'm the dad and you space hippie have just done this to my daughter mm-hmm. right but it, it it plays out i don't know how much of this the authors of the episode intended but it really does play out well through a late 60s kind of interpretive mm-hmm. lens yeah you can imagine exactly this scene playing out where a a guy who is maybe uh he, he tells himself he's well-meaning as a hippie he's just trying to expand this girl's mind and help her feel better and 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 you know explore new possibilities but dad is like look at what happened right yep yeah it, it, and and it's because of the guy's own selfishness Yes. Yep. I mean, as I think about it, like I've probably seen similar similar plots play out in a bunch of different, you know, uh, TV dramas, you know, similar. Mm-hmm. You know, like to that. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, that, that's true. I, I want to talk briefly about Kov and Tucker, the, the, the uh, Vulcan engineer whose dad is dying. And Tucker's trying to convince him, like, look, talk to your dad before he dies because you'll have regrets. You will. And, and that's an emotion you really don't want to explore. And, and you're you're too new at this emotion business to have serious experience with regret yet. Yeah, uh, exactly. exactly, exactly. And so he, one of the ways he does he tells him this story. First, he asks him to do Vulcans dance. I'm going to guess they probably have maybe some sort of ritualized movement, but they probably which, don't. Which which Kav acknowledges we have ritual dances. Yeah, uh, and then so Trip tells him this story of this girl he twenty years prior as a, as a teenager probably where he a girl he wanted to ask to dance and missing his opportunity. <laughs> the cop totally misses the point. Like, yeah. so what are you telling me this for? But uh, it was it was a cute scene, and it, it eventually gets across to Kov, and he does. We find out that he does talk to his dad, and he's happy to have done so. I like the engineer bonding between Trip and Tov. Mm-hmm. Tov is basically a nerd. Yeah, so he's, he's a Vulcan nerd. 
And that's fine, although he's too human as a Vulcan yeah. nerd. Yeah, that, um, that was, was my complaint about him is he very much played off as just a human geek. He was a he's a engineering geek and that's all he was. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I wanted to comment on was at the end of the episode, uh, you know, T'Pol is meditating to prepare for her dreams and mm-hmm. keep them on track. And um, an Archer comes in to see how she's doing. And she asks Archer, do you dream? And he says sometimes. And then he says sometimes they're even in color. Mm-hmm. And this is something that is a little bit interesting because a lot of people in the 20th century, especially, would dream in black and white. Mm. And a lot of people would only dream in black and white. And this is, and I, I'm the opposite. I never dream in black and white. I always dream in color. Same here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my wife dreamed in black and white huh. um, mm. when she was alive. And, and so this is a bit revelatory of the authors of this episode. At least one of them must have been a black and white dreamer. Or they would never think to include the line, sometimes even in color. And it turns out that this is a generational thing. And the people that dream in black and white grew up with black and white movies and television. And that screen that you would see in the physical world somehow translated subconsciously to the screen you would see in your mind when you're dreaming. And so I'm, I, I grew up in the generation where black and white movies were still around. I mean, they weren't the norm, but they were still around. Same with my mm-hmm. wife and black and white TV was the norm when I was a kid, a small one. Mm-hmm. Um, and in my wife's case, she became a black and white dreamer. I became a color dreamer, but now color dreamers are the, are much larger because mm-hmm. so few young people have had that much exposure to black and white visual media. It makes me wonder what people 200 years ago, what their experience of dreams was like long before there was TV or movies. That's kind of, yeah, I would, I would assume it was natural. I would assume it was, you know, um, color. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I wonder about other things like, you know, I have periodically throughout the years have that dream of it's it, I'm in university and it's finals time and there's a class oh, yeah. I haven't been to all semester. Yes. You all <laughs> have that one. And but but in ages past people didn't go to university. What did they think? It was did they have the dream where it's harvest time and you suddenly <laughs> realize you forgot to plant the crops? Yeah. yeah exactly. Probably. I was just gonna say that. <laughs> yeah, they they, they have some, harvest. I'll have to ask how my farmer my farmer parishioners see what they have to say about that. <laughs> yeah. Now, now, of course, I got to make the comment. The reason why they dreamed in black and white is because the world was in black and white back then, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> now, if this was if this was 22nd century, what Archer should have said is sometimes they're even in 3D. <laughs> there you <laughs> right, go. Right, right. Sometimes they're even holograms. Um, now, in that same scene, what she the, the next thing she asks him is, are they enjoyable? And he says, yes, you or usually. Yeah. And most nights, Not statistically, no. The dominant emotion <laughs> in dreaming is anxiety, it's, which is interesting. But she says, "I envy you." So apparently, she never has enjoyable dreams, or almost, or very rarely, which is interesting given what we had seen of her prior previous dreams. And and is it because the uh, enjoyment is um, well, she's repressing it, right, right, and so therefore not enjoyable. Oh, okay. The emotion of enjoyment. I get that. Okay. I see what you're saying. Interesting. Enjoy. She envies the emotion. Very cool. 
All right. I think that should do it for us. Uh, Father Quay, do you have any final uh, comments? Uh, just that this this mind meld is going to come back next season. Uh, to Paul is going to get some disease from it that affects her emotions. Oh, right. So, Telepathic a, space VD. Sixties yep, exactly. all over again. <laughs> so they, they they can't leave this alone. They have to use it for another analogy That's at a later true. season next That's season. Uh, all right, uh, Jimmy. Final thoughts. It's just like when Dennis Miller paid for all of Charlie Manson's girls to go down to the clinic and get penicillin because of their activities. Oh, gosh. Mm. <laughs> All right. Uh, so if uh, no more notes, uh, that, then let's uh, wrap things up there. We do want to take I'm a sorry, moment. Dennis Wilson. Dennis Wilson. Of, Dennis the Beach Boys. Boys. of the Beach Boys. <laughs> Den- I was thinking Dennis Miller would have been pretty young then. But, uh, yeah, no, no, not, <laughs> not, not, not Dennis. Dennis. Charlie Manson and his gang lived in Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys house for a while. That's right. Oh, okay. That's right. And he would do things like pay for the girls to go get penicillin treatment because of all the VD. And he would let them drive around his Rolls Royce to go get food out of garbage dumpsters and things like that. I'm going to put a content warning at the top of the episode because <laughs> folks, don't listen to this episode with your kids. <laughs> I should probably put that, should have said that at the beginning. Uh, we'll, we'll go back. Pretty, 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 I mean, yeah. pretty low key about it. Yeah. Teenagers, probably okay. Uh, any younger than that, maybe not. <laughs> anyway, let's take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Star Trek, including. Nash C, Slow, Harrison B, Dina C, and George H. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Star Trek and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And we'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edits the show for us every week. So that's it from us. What did you think of uh, Enterprise's episode called Fusion? You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com slash trek, our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Media, or send an email to trek at sqpn.com. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the next new episode of Star Trek Prodigy, which comes back next week. Until then, Father Cory Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Star Trek. Thank you, Dom. And Jimmy Aitken, thank you as well. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Star Trek on StarQuest. And remember, just because they smile and eat chicken doesn't mean they've learned to master their emotions. 